it's time for another episode of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes. Here's your host, Terrence McCauley. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Today, our guest is Deanne Stillman. She is a widely acclaimed and published author of several works. Her latest book, American Confidential, uncovering the bizarre story of Lee Harvey Oswald and his mother, is available now from Melville House. Deanne, thank you for being here. Thanks a lot for inviting me, Terrence. Of course. Now, this is a subject that's always been near and dear to my heart. You know, anything that has to do with conspiracy theories or as they're starting to become known as now, a lot of aspects of it is conspiracy fact. Uh, there's no shortage of people who are interested in the JFK assassination and all of its different, uh, I would say, all of its different assets. But what made you want to tell the story about the relationship between Lee Harvey Oswald and his mom? Well, I've read so much about it over the years. And um, one of the things that I noticed in, in pretty much everything that I was reading is that there was this aspect of their relationship that was generally not explored in all of the other writing about both of them. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there are a lot of stats about about each one, you know, in, in some of the major books and so on, but there's nothing that gets into the fact that um, Marguerite seems to have felt, Marguerite Lee's mother seems to have felt that people weren't giving her proper credit in her life for or anything. She was um, kind of a very beleaguered woman. She grew up during the Depression, the age of Huey Long, every man a king, every woman a queen. And that was certainly a legitimate slogan at the time. I mean, a lot of people in the country were destitute and broke and throwing themselves off bridges and so on. And she, she grew up kind of in the height of that. And dropped out of high school at the age of 17 and took out took on a series of menial jobs, including a nanny, babysitter. I mean, at one point she was a greeter for the Fort Worth welcome wagon. And then another time she was selling notions out of their front room. Um, then while they were living in the Bronx, she was peddling insurance from her car door to door. <clears throat> she, um, just was never able to settle down in any particular job and felt trapped. She felt, you know, as a member of the working class that she was not taken seriously. And I'm sure she wasn't, but to a, a great degree, a lot of that was of her own making. And she passed a lot of that on to Lee. Um, oh, you know, no one appreciates me. Um, whenever he would get into trouble or when she would be called out on anything, her kind of first line of defense was, it's a free country. I can do what I want. And then Lee, right, picked right. Up, Lee said that in any number of times about himself, um, you know, including at the end when he was arrested for the murder of JFK. I mean, it's kind of like the go-to defense for people who are who feel constantly persecuted and mistreated. And she harbored a great degree of class resentment, you know, because of her station in life and was another thing she passed on to Lee. So I noticed that in a lot of the, it's 
let me say, I put, picked up on it in a lot of the things I was reading about both of them. Um, sure. The flip side of that is that she wanted to be taken seriously and recognized and um, and admired. I mean, she made a point, she sent away for, evidently the family had a coat of arms. <clears throat> Sorry, I, I'm a little, my, I have a touch of asthma, so that's why my voice is quavering, but. Um, oh, okay, that's fine. Uh, she was obsessed with royalty. She sent, she had sent away for a family coat of arms and um, it was something she was very proud of. It was like, hey, look, we're royals. Um, right. We're not nobodies. We count, we matter. Um, and that was something that, that Lee took on, you know, in a big way. I think it was partly, it had to do with one of the reasons he defected to Russia, um, mm -hmm. which, you know, was presenting itself at the time as a worker's paradise and still does actually. Um, and he felt that that was a place that might've appreciated his mother. You know, he was going to go there and, um, become uh, exalted for being a worker. Right. You know, and some... for all of the uh, knowledge that he brought with him from the Marines as a radar operator in uh, Japan. Right, he had all of this knowledge, which of course has fueled any number of conspiracy theories, but I think his main motivation, and he spoke of this too, was was that um, he felt it was a country that took, that appreciated workers. But then when he got there, that that was not the case. Um, they were exploited there too. Mm -hmm. So I found all these things running through both of their stories, and and um, it's just something I wanted to explore further. And also in my other books, I've noticed uh, some par. I had noticed uh, there there are these threads running through a lot of the stories I tell. Um, uh, my books have to do with um, American violence and specific acts, and, and I take a look at why people are carrying them out and what goes on, what are the pathologies inside families that lead to, say, the mass shootings of today. And what I've seen over and over again is um, uh, no father in the house. Um, right. I'm not saying that everybody every child of divorce ends up, you know, carrying out a violent act. I mean, there are plenty of successful children of divorce, including Barack Obama, for instance. And he right. has spoken about this. I mean, my parents were divorced and I know many, many people who do quite well and, and their parents were divorced. But in the case of a lot of these violent young men, they, there's just no father figure on the premises. And Margarita Oswald had several husbands. And apparently, according to Lee's older brothers, one of the few times in Lee's life that he actually appeared to flourish was when, was during one of his mother's marriages uh, to a guy named Ed Ekdahl. And Ed became a father figure for Lee. Lee's own father died before he was born. Right. It was a father figure to Lee and his brothers and would do things like take them to the movies and out for ice cream and, you know, just all the things that dads do, but that, but they had never experienced or Lee hadn't because he grew because his father had died, but 
and he really sparked to that. And then when Marguerite got divorced, that was one of the things that contributed to his downward spiral. Right, and a lot of people don't pay attention to the fact that he moved around a lot, and that's something that you touched on earlier in this interview, where he, you know, he was in New Orleans, and then they moved all the way up to the Bronx, where I'm from, and he was a, a kid in New York who was a, a truant case, and a lot of people don't understand that he had he didn't really have roots growing up, and he was kind of a uh, a lost soul, him and the mother. I think that's a really good point. I mean, I think the figure is 19 times that they had moved by the time he was 17 or something. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's I have it in my book. It's in that vicinity. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he had to repeat first grade a number of times because they kept moving. So he was unable to make any friends anywhere. Yep. You know, and by the time bond with anybody, they, it was time to move again. And Marguerite just couldn't stay in any one place for a very long time. I mean, she was an unstable person. She was constantly juggling rent and, you know, uh, how to buy groceries and who's going to babysit the kids while I'm at work. And a lot of problems that beleaguer single moms, but again, in her case, it was to her her own making to a great degree and she um she alienated a lot of people around her and the, and the, and again the constant moving i i think that was her because of her own restlessness you know it's a very american thing too not sure hardly a one-off that way i mean for instance you know they moved a number of times back and forth between new orleans and dallas and fort worth and new orleans was of course their birthplace but uh, you mentioned the bronx uh, it's interesting that you're from there as well. Um, they moved to the Bronx in, um, it was like 1951 or something. Lee was about 11 or 12, and that was to uh, be, to move in with his older brother who was in, stationed in the Coast Guard. Um, yeah. and, they were, and they were, the brother and his, his wife were living <clears throat> living in the Bronx, and Marguerite felt that I mean, ostensibly, the cover story was, um, oh, well, you know, let's just, we're going to go visit John Pick. That, that was his name. We're going to have a great family visit and so on. But the real reason was that uh, Marguerite wanted to move in with them permanently and was hoping that, you know, she could live rent-free there. And um, it turned out, it really, the whole thing really blew up and Lee became increasingly violent, but one of the places he found, excuse me, found sanctuary at the Bronx Zoo. Yep. And a lot of time there. I feel that he was probably communing with caged wild animals and, you know, maybe identified with, with, for instance, mountain lions or cougars, you know, the way a lot of young boys do. And, um, um, a lot of people in general do and, and go to the zoo to kind of uh, you know, spend time with him. And I think that the zoo provided a great deal of solace for him. And he told his mother that he liked it there a lot. And that's, he it ended up being busted for truancy there because he was constantly cutting class. And um, I guess a there was a truant officer at the zoo one day and he nailed Lee. And then 
it was it was a moment that Lee never forgot because the truant officer apparently made fun of his um, his New Orleans draw or his actually it was what the officer took to be his a Texas accent. Lee actually okay. had a hodgepodge accent, but he made fun of him for being a cracker. I don't know if that was his exact word, but he made fun of him for being from the South and he was wearing jeans and that was a cause of much derision. And and I think that that was one th another thing that fueled Lee's kind of resentment of authority figures. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he grew up, it, he was born in New Orleans and so was his mother and that was, you know, the seat, seat of the Confederacy during the Civil War. And he himself was named after Robert E. Lee. That's where the Lee comes from. His right, older, and his older, older brother was Robert. E. Lee, and then their their father was Robert E. Lee Sr. And that was a co very common naming tradition in the South. Um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of boys were named after Robert E. Lee. And it was something that Lee said he was proud of. He told his, his um, some of his um, mates in the Marines that, he, you know, he, he was proud of the name. And I, I feel that in some way, taking out JFK was kind of a rebel yell on his part. Right. I was going to ask you about that uh, a little bit later, but, you know, it's always the 400 pound gorilla in the room whenever you talk about the uh, anything around the assassination. Uh, you did a lot of study into Lee Harvey Oswald's life, his mother's life, their relationship. Where do you come down on his participation in the events in Dallas in 63? Do you think it was him and somebody else? Do you think he was a patsy? What do you, what, where do you come down on it? I think that in the end, there was indeed a conspiracy, a conspiracy of, of one that was accidentally formed by him and his mother in this desperate campaign of theirs to matter. Mm -hmm. And it's not something that they planned, but it just erupted when the moment presented itself. Um, this pathology that erupted, you know, inside their family and manifested itself through Lee um, was a product of their relationship. Um, they Lee felt that he didn't count for anything, and and he didn't. I mean, he was not, you know, like his mother. He had a series of menial jobs when he got back from Russia, and it worked out. And he was constantly moving, and he um, was beating his wife. Um, you know, kind of a he was involved in a pattern that was very similar to families in those circumstances. Um, he felt that he wasn't taken seriously by anybody. I mean, he came back and with, you know, with his diaries and tried, wanted to get them published as a book. And a weird thing, one weird thing that happened was when he got back, one of the first things his mother said to him was, guess what? I've been writing a book about your life in Russia and my attempts to get you out of there. And he was like, but wait a second, mom, I wrote my own book. So right. everyone wants to be an author, right? Including Lee and Marguerite Oswald. Here they were both trying to get published. I mean, again, to be recognized 
And by that, I mean, I don't mean like, oh, you, you know, you're on the front page of the New York Times, although, of course, that happened. But what I mean is just that they just wanted to be acknowledged. Definitely, uh, he got a lot of fanfare, a fair amount of fanfare when he reached Russia. And from what I've read, he also expected to get a lot when he came back. And there was only like one reporter at the airport. And I don't think they took his picture that day. I know it's another funny scene. I mean, he he was constantly enacting these, casting himself in these dramas in which he was the director and the star. So he um, comes back to America after, you know, becoming this notorious defector. And um, as you say, you know, like one reporter was there to greet him, not not the mob of reporters that he was expecting. Right. His brother was there, but that was about it. So again, he gets back, you know, with his trophy wife, his beautiful Russian wife, Marina, and that didn't seem to do anything for him. Um, right. And their daughter at the time, yeah. Their little baby girl. So it confirmed all his beliefs about everything. You know, I'm a nobody. That nothing I do matters. I can't even run away to Russia and and, and get it. It's like the Rodney Dangerfield of defectors. <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely right. Yeah, you know, I get no respect. I get, get no respect. And uh, so there was that. And then, you know, he was constantly involved in weird disputes. After he got back, you know, all that stuff on the streets of New Orleans. Um, right. We should get him some notoriety. Some notoriety, that's right. But but I think that was the drive for it. He wanted, he was seeking attention because he was all over the map with his political views. You know, people have picked up on that stuff as proof of some sort of, some sort of conspiratorial alliance. But it was just his own his own craziness and his own search for attention, I believe. I mean, right. certainly he associated with a lot of nefarious characters and I get how all these theories have arisen over the years. And, um, you know, at the time of JFK's assassination, um, you know, we were about to become heavily involved in Vietnam and there were, you know, Clearly, the government was lying about a number of things. Sure. That became more and more obvious after JFK's assassination. But it's just, to me, there, you know, this key, the whole thing goes back to Lee and his mother. And, um, you know, when you, when you um, combine Lee Harvey Oswald with the Bill of Rights, you get the JFK assassination. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely seems that way because when you see Lee and you see his his background, he and he was so bland and unremarkable, it leaves almost a blank canvas for a lot of people to cast their beliefs about why the assassination happened onto him because there, there's not a whole lot to grab onto except a lot of uncertainty. And I think that uncertainty leaves an awful lot of room for supposition and and uh, other theories. Yeah, he was clearly a blank slate in a lot of ways. Um, although in certain key ways, not, I feel. I mean, for instance, while I was working on my book, I found out 
early on that um, his grandfather was a a streetcar conductor in New Orleans, and this was at the beginning of the New Orleans trolley system. And that that's that's you know a pretty widely known fact about uh, Marguerite's father. Um, but I st what I started thinking about was like I wonder what streetcar line he was driving on and where did it go and how did that impact Lee, if at all. Um, and it turned out that he well may have been a conductor on the Desire line, you know, of the famous streetcar named Desire play by Tennessee Williams. And then I started thinking about like, wow, you know, that's pretty amazing. Um, how, how did that resonate for him, you know, this conductor and how, how did that, how did the fact that he was working on, on the desire line, you know, what, what effect did that have on the family? And I started to think about how, <clears throat> how desire and longing played out in the Oswald family itself and, and deeper parallels than that. I mean, like Stanley Kowalski in Streetcar, Lee was beating his wife and his situation with Marina was not unlike what was going on with uh, Stanley and Stella, uh, you know, of down a kind of a beleaguered working class family with a with a male in the family taking it out on the female husband taking it out on the wife. A lot of brutality and violence there in these shabby and meager circumstances. But amid all this, the beauty of New Orleans and all this kind of voodoo mystique and everything, and I and I really started imagining Lee inside of all that while he was growing up and and let's face it you can't really take that out of that is New Orleans all that stuff you know Marie right, yeah in the voodoo and and um you know gypsies on the street uh selling flowers for the dead and all of that and that's just in the ethers there um and then also there was a the fact that um when Lee and his mother moved to the Bronx, he really developed a fondness for riding the subways. And he used to go down into the subways all the time and ride the rails. And I feel like that may have been something uh, passed on to him as a family legacy. Um, you know, just a way of communing with his grandfather, whom he didn't really know. But, um, you know, as part of, you know, the way we all do, we try to kind of do things that our um, ancestors have done, or we try to get in touch with our legacies in one way or another. And I feel that that was something that contributed to Lee's behavior. I mean, he was very proud of his uh, knowledge of the subways and carried maps and would show off the maps to his brother and so on. And right. it was a big deal in his life while they were in the Bronx. Yeah, and he seems to really be one of those characters that you think you know everything about him, that all the work's been done before, because um, there's countless books about him and his motivations. But then every once in a while, if you pay close enough attention, a book like yours comes up that takes a completely different look at his past and his history. I know that there have been other books that were written. I think one was called Lee and Harvey or Lee and Oswald. And it was about someone who did some painstaking research about how much they moved around in his childhood. And he thought that he was 
being set up as a, uh, a straw man from youth, that there were two different children because Matt, the records didn't match up. And I, I, it broke my heart because I think the author did a really good, honest job. But it seemed to me, because I spent 25 years in government, it was probably bureaucratic error rather than uh, a blanket federal government or intelligence agency conspiracy setting up this guy from, from childhood. That makes a lot of sense. I often find that there's a Keystone Cops situation playing out with any number of conspiracy theories or, or you know, follow-ups in, in, in any number of situations. I mean, when you start looking closely at court records and um, testimonies of insiders, um, there often there's there are so many discrepancies, and I just think it's because a lot of it is because of human frailty and the fact that people don't exchange correct information, um, mm -hmm. uh, things aren't transcribed correctly. I mean, I've seen this play out time and time again in, in other tri trials that I've covered in my other books, you know, missing files. It's not because somebody, it's mostly not because somebody was paid to steal a file. Sometimes it is, but usually it's just because a file was lost or somebody right. it was important. Um, or they spilled coffee on it and didn't want to get in trouble, so they threw it out. It's often right. like that. And so in the case of, you know, JFK being assassinated, obviously these people, are, I mean, people are going to scrutinize what happened very closely, and, and, and we all should, and we have. Um, but again, they're just, I mean, according to all these conspiracy theories everybody in Dallas was in on the fix I mean it's just it's too kooky right and then also you know there have been conspiracy theories that also say oh all the guys who were involved in in uh, Watergate were involved in this and right. you know G Gordon Liddy was one of the shoot I mean that that kind of stuff I don't see I, I think it's one thing to suppose it and talk about it between two people but to actually write it down I don't think it was that deep I think, um, you know, but the, the beautiful part of all of these, this subgenre of, of JFK conspiracy theories is that there's a lot of places to look and there's a lot of different theories and trains of thought to examine. Um, did you find yourself going down a little bit of a rabbit hole when you were researching this book? Oh, yes. I mean, I've been looking into this stuff for years. You know, it becomes addictive at some point and, and, and some of the theories are quite intriguing you know, from the three tramps to the Miami Cubans to um, the mafia, which is the most appealing of all the theories to me, apart from the th theory, the conspiracy of one that I talk about in my book. But something I also write about in American Confidential is that, well, I, I describe all the theories as, as um, a monster and that's a, a monster um, like the, uh, Rougarou, that it's a legendary werewolf that is said to uh, live in Lake Pontchartrain, which is mm -hmm. you know, in New Orleans, of course, and Lee and his family used to vacation there. So that's this monster that, um, it, you know, is said to emerge at different times from the swamps there and terrorize everybody. So I describe all these theories as the manifestation of the Rougarou that lives in Lake Pontchartrain. And that's 
really something that's come right out of New Orleans. Right. Yeah, it definitely is. And it's it's definitely the, the kind of book that I recommend to people to uh, to read if you're in, interested in the theories at all, because it's not good to just read the books that you agree with, but it's also important to get other people's perspectives on stuff and not just necessarily the most recent stuff. I read, I'm looking at it right now, um, The Death of the President by William Manchester. Oh, yeah. And you know, it's it was written right around the, right after Kennedy was assassinated. The author interviews Jacqueline Kennedy um, in the years after uh, the assassination. It's very much takes the uh, the uh, co the Warren Commission as gospel. But you know, and some people say, well, it's it's not valuable. It is valuable in that it gives you a, a, an important sense of how people were thinking about the assassination in the months, weeks, and years after it happened. And that's important because for a while, the Warren Commission wasn't challenged that much by most people. But then as people, I think, got older and started thinking about it, that's when you start, and doing more research, that's when they started seeing where the cracks were. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, everyone was right to, uh, you know, look into the Warren Commission report and you know, in a very serious way. And then, of course, in the 70s, the uh, House investigation, there was that new investigation, the House uh, Assassinations Investiga Investigation Committee, some, some mm -hmm. type like that. But it's, it seems to have, um, I don't want to say, it, it, it says that there probably was a conspiracy involved in, in the JFK assassination. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, there are all these discrepancies in the reports and so on, but I read so much on the subject and I go, I keep returning to the Warren report. Um, and the, the most important thing to me about the Warren report is that there's all this information about the family buried in it. I, not, I'm not so much interested in, you know, forensics and like who was standing in what window at what time, although I, I of course, that's all important, but um, there were a lot of things I found out about Marguerite just from reading her testimony, the kind of stuff that nobody else has paid attention to. I mean, she told one of the things she told the commission was that when Lee was um, 11 years old, he called her one day at work. This was when the, this was in New Orleans. Maybe he was. Yeah, he must have been 11 years old. Um, he called her at work and um, violating her rule to never bother her at work unless there was an emergency. But he just had to tell her that Queen Elizabeth had just had a baby. You know, that was all over the news. And this was Prince mm -hmm. of Diana. It was 1951. I actually put it all together. I looked up the year and the time and everything. So I thought that this is something that is I haven't seen reported elsewhere. It's buried somewhere in one of the, you know, in volume 32 of the commission report or something. But to mm -hmm. me, this says a lot about Lee's relationship with his mother. I mean, he wanted to sort of gain her favor or, you know, gain some affection by passing on this important piece of information to her at work, even though he was 
violating a family rule and it was he knew that it was something that she would appreciate that oh my god this one of the royals just had a baby it was a big deal obviously to her and a lot of other people um you know royal watching is not a not something that was peculiar to the oswalds but it no. goes to their feeling of class um inequality and so on and and you know the flip side of that is wanting to be a royal um right. you know when they i one of the another thing i did in my book is um uh i reconstructed this road trip that they took from uh, new orleans to the bronx and imagine the conversation that they probably had on route and one something that was important to Marguerite and she had this again this is all was also in the commission testimony somewhere was that um uh, or maybe she had said it to somewhere else but I but again something I read in you know the volumes of interviews with her and so on um you know that the idea was that rich and famous people live in New York and if we can only get near them. Maybe some of that would rub off on us. And wow, we're going to live in the Big Apple. And doesn't mm -hmm. that make us a big deal? So that idea informed this conversation that I uh, recreate in my book. And I think right. things like that that are buried in all of the, uh, you know, commission testimony and other investigator investigatory reports tell well they told me anyway more about what went on you know on november 22nd than a lot of the other investigations right yeah and i mean it's it's fascinating because if you're if anyone is serious about looking into this entire um assassination story you can't just read one book and you can't just read one school of thought because as i've done it because i'm working on my own project for the chicago 63 um assassination attempt that was foiled um earlier in november you, you know you you even if you don't think you're going to agree with something for, with a book that someone has written about the assassination plot or the, the conspiracy there's going to be nuggets that you don't find anywhere else. And it's up to us to piece them together like you did in your book and come up with plausible explanations or see where the dots might fit and uh, be able to say, you know what, maybe that's a, you never know where you're going to find justification for your own idea of what happened. And you seem to have done that with doing things like recreating the, uh, that conversation that they could have had on the road trip from, New Orleans to the Bronx. Yeah, I appreciate your mentioning that. Um, I mean, for sure, everybody's going to have their own, you know, interpretation of what happened. Um, it was a moment that changed the world. And, um, you know, uh, Robert Kennedy Sr. said it after Martin Luther King was assassinated, he, he said, um, and shortly before his own assassination, he said, you know, that fellow Oswald really uncorked something in this country. Now, he, he was, of course, he was talking about the, you know, JFK and Martin Luther King, but I feel he didn't, he had no idea how prescient that remark was. I mean, mm. 
what, you know, in my view, I trace a line in my book from Oswald to the uh, young men who are like mass shooters of today. And some of them have pictures of Oswald in their files. Um, mm -hmm. Artie Bremer, who tried to assassinate Governor Wallace of Alabama in 1972, talked about Oswald in his diaries. Um, you know, the ricochet of, of effect of the shots fired in Dallas that day have gone a long way. Um, yeah, and the um, and also too when John Hinckley uh, shot at Reagan, oh, really? uh, didn't he have the catcher in the rye uh, in in his possession? Wasn't that one of his his favorite books? And yeah, yeah, he liked. Yeah, Holden Caulfield, who was very much like an Oswald character, written around the time Oswald was growing up, but That's you right. know, Oswald yeah. kind of became a a character the character from Catcher in the Rye, and that inspired somebody like uh, Hinckley. Yeah, I think that's that's a good point. And also, oh, I almost forgot to mention this. Um, uh, Travis Bickle was based on um, Oswald. That's right. Taxi drivers, taxi drivers loosely based on Oswald. And I, I write in my book that that picture of that fame, the famous picture of Lee with his rifle. Mm -hmm. It's like him saying, you know, you talking to me, you talking to me, Ma. Yeah. And that picture has, in effect, become the first selfie of a young man with a weapon. Mm -hmm. It certainly did, yeah. It, was it a certainly Polaroid, was. Even though it was a Polaroid, but it function, it's functioned as a selfie. Yeah, it definitely has. And it's definitely uh, a topic that, you know, once you, every like I said earlier, once you think everything about it has been written and every avenue is explored, Somebody like you comes along and adds a whole new depth to the investigation that uh, we haven't really looked at seriously. And, and you've definitely done that with this book. Well, thanks a lot, Terrence. I really appreciate that. Oh, no problem at all. Thank you for, for taking the time to do it because it's, it's, it's a well-trod part of history, but it's, it's still something that deserves to be examined. So I was wondering, could you let us know what you're working on now, what your next top, next topic going to be, um, you know, your the next book you're planning on writing or article. Yes, um, I'm working on a book about the last mountain lions of Los Angeles. Mm. That might sound that it's far afield from this book, you know, and in certain ways it is, but um, I do, I mean, animals in our uh, treatment of wildlife is a concern, lifelong concern of mine. And it's something I wrote about in a previous book of mine called Mustang, which is right. American history by way of the wild horse and a really serious look at um, the wars against the wild horse and how that plays out and what that means, you know, for us as Amer Americans. And the question I asked there is why are we a cowboy nation destroying the horse we rode in on? Well, it's a serious look at yeah. the Western mythology and so on. And um, and this does go back to my Oswald book, which I feel that Oswald lived in a kind of mythological Wild West and sometimes the real Wild West. He was informed by it, as we all are. Um, he, the night before the assassination, he was whistling the theme song from the movie High Noon, for instance. Um, all right, he, yeah. Like 
you know, picking up a gun and taking out someone you don't like, that's all pretty American. Um, but, it, but at any rate, back to my book about uh, uh, mountain lions, uh, you know, it goes to our disconnect from wildlife and how we need to uh, reconnect with what's wild and um, and do so in a way that that uh, honors these animals and, and, and allows us to, I feel that this is something that can take us away from our violent side. I mean, I think there was a reason that Oswald was hanging out at the Bronx Zoo. I think he really identified with the wild animals there. And right. I think maybe, I mean, who knows, but maybe if he had been able to spend more time there, or develop, you know, any number of things that happened that would have permitted him to 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 connect in a in an ongoing way with um you know with the land all around us you know then maybe maybe that would have solved the problem and I feel that that's the case for all of us I mean I, so that's why I tell these stories of our disconnect in one way or another. Right. Yeah, I was going to say that seems to be a common theme with with you and several of your books. You you like to talk about the uh, the outlier, the uh, the lone uh, creature, if you will, whether it's the mustangs that travel in herds, but they're unique in their own way, or Oswald, who was definitely a, a loner, and now with the American uh, mountain lion out in Los Angeles, it's a uh, it's a really great uh, kind of theme that you have there. Oh, thanks a lot, Ter Terrence. I appreciate that. No problem. Now, if the audience wants to keep track of what you're doing and, and what you're uh, up to next, what, how can they follow you on social media, your website, things like that? Oh, yes. I'm, um, I'm on Twitter at, at Deanne Stillman2, the number two. Okay. Um, you could go through my website, DeanneStillman.com. Um, I have a public page on Facebook under my name. I'm on Instagram at real Deanne Stillman. Um, so those are a few ways. Fantastic. Well, that's great. Well, thank you for taking the time to be here and uh, talk about your latest work. And thanks to you, the audience, for being here for yet another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We'll see you next time, everybody. Take care. You have been listening to Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes with host Terrence McCauley on Authors on the Air Global Radio Network.